So we finished Lent last week, and you guys are probably uh, happy that this is a new text in front of us. We spent eight weeks and 11 verses as we went through the season of Lent. And Paul here is getting to what most people would consider a major transition in this letter. And we're going to kind of make a transition as well. We're going to look at three things, grace possibly in vain, and then grace described in Paul's life, and then grace enough for others. But one of the haunting verses here is, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Well, who would want to do that? That sounds terrible. And even if you're not a Christian this morning, receiving a gift and then blowing it doesn't seem all that cool at all. How is it possible not to receive a gift, and who would do that? Well, I recently finished a great book um, called In the Realm of Hungry Ghost. What a haunting title. And the author is a doctor, a medical doctor, and he works with the most drug-addicted people in sort of the skid row of Vancouver, British Columbia. And he has multiple stories of addicts whose parents die and leave them a home, leave them possessions, leave them an inheritance. And in almost every case, it's gone within weeks. There's one story that he tells of one of his patients who inherited $150,000. This person was homeless, drug addicted, living on the streets, and you would think, here's his big break. Well, that money disappeared within less than a month. Not only did he get high off the $150,000, but all of his friends did as well. It literally went up in smoke. This was an unconditional gift that his parents left them. They were gone. They had passed on. There's no strings attached. There's no one monitoring how this gift was used. But couldn't we say that this was a gift that was used in vain? His inheritance that had so much potential was rendered powerless and unprofitable in the way that it was used. And if you remember from our study, one of the running themes throughout the Corinthian letters is Paul calling his church to behavioral integrity, to the behavioral implications of the gospel. And he's reprimanding them for not living up to their inheritance, not living out of this priceless gift that they've been given in the gospel. They're in danger of receiving God's gift in vain. Now, as I said, chapter 6 is a major transition. And scholars often parse out Paul's letters because he tends to write in large chunks in one way or another. One of those is indicative. That is the what of the gospel, the who of God, indicating what the gospel is and what the Christian uh, identity is. And then the imperative, that is, what are we to do now? The so what of the gospel. And though there is some overlap from chapters 1 through 5, it's highly indicative. He's talking to the Corinthians about their reconciliation, about what the gospel is, and this great gift that they've received. And then now, in verse 1 of chapter 6, he moves a little bit more directly into the so what. What do we do now in light of this great inheritance? And what he's doing here is he's describing the nature of the Christian life itself. It's sort of Christianity 101, that Christianity is not just a mental assent to a specific set of doctrines, but it is an active collusion with Jesus and his work. 
And he's saying that if, Corinthians, if in town, if you are reconciled, if you are a new creation that we looked at in chapter 5, then this is what it's going to look like. And it's not, as all, not at all difficult to reach back into this letter that's approximately 2,000 years and, an esta- and establish a relevance for our situation today. Because as you scan the headlines, as you look around at modern Christianity, much of modern American Christianity looks barely Christian. It resembles more of a political ideology than a spiritual movement based upon the person and the life and the teaching of Jesus. And so it's totally understandable that the world outside looks in and says, no, thank you. I don't really want anything to do with that. And maybe closer to home, those of us that have, been, that have grown up in or in, uh, have inherited this great theological tradition of some of the churches that follow creeds and follow confessions and have sophisticated theology, often you hear these kinds of churches that talk about Christianity as if it's simply assenting to a set of propositions. It's agreeing with the Bible. And it's very right, and it's deeply important to preach and teach and believe that Christianity is not simply a behavioral system, that none of us get to God through our morality. In fact, the story of the gospel is that we don't get to God at all, that He reaches out to us and He makes His way to us in His unconditional grace. But those that receive that grace, those that receive that inheritance should be, will be marked by it. Paul is is inviting the Corinthians, and he's inviting us to inspect our own confession and to ask, is Christianity a matter of talk? Is it verbal only, or is it a matter of life? Is there evidence in your community, Corinth, Is there evidence in your community in town that the gospel has begun to make tracks in your life? In all Western movies, there's always the tracker, right? There's the person that can look at a bent blade of grass and say, they went that away, and there was three of them, and one of them was injured, and this is the food they were carrying. Well, in the Christian life, the tracking is the life that we leave behind, the life that we lead And it should be evident if someone is tracking your life to be able to say, this is the direction of the gospel. Jesus went that way through this person's life. Now, interestingly, Paul offers up his own ministry as an example of the tracks that Christianity leaves in someone's life. He gives us sort of an ethical map of the kind of life that demonstrates God's gift has not been received in vain. And so we looked at, first of all, the potentiality of grace in vain, but now we need to look at grace described, as Paul describes it in his own life. Now, Paul sort of lays out his resume here, and the reason that he does so and that he needs to do so is that there's a lot of false information out there about Paul. There were some people that were infiltrating the church that he had planned and trying to exert influence over the Corinthians in negative ways by denigrating Paul. And Paul counters, there's a lot of fake news out there about me, and it's sad. And he offers a series of corrections, and he offers a series of contrasts. And it's not 140 characters, but 
it is almost 140 words, which is interesting. And it sounds like he's just tweeting out his accomplishments. This is why Paul is so great. This is why you should follow me. But is there a method to Paul's seeming madness? Is he bragging? Or is there something that he's telling the Corinthians that really is vital to their life as a church and their relationship to him? Well, think with me back in our study to the early fall. I'm sure all of you remember this. Paul planted this church in the bustling city of Corinth, and they were a church that only a mother could love. They didn't do anything Paul told them to do. They were gossipy, they were immoral, they were fickle, and they were very self-important. And yet Paul loved them deeply, and he kept caring for them, and he kept writing them, and he kept reaching out to them, and he kept trying to visit them over and over, not as a sort of stern disciplinarian, but to try to open up the gospel to them and for them so that they could live this life that he found so compelling. Now, if you know Paul's background, you know that he has an amazing resume on paper. He studied under one of the greatest theologians in Israel. He was incredibly intelligent. He wrote much of the New Testament, was this fascinating writer, but apparently he wasn't all that impressive in person. Christian tradition tells us that he didn't look very attractive. He was kind of funny looking. He walked weird. And because the Corinthians were so self-important, they thought, we need better than Paul. We need someone who's a more powerful orator. We need someone who's skilled at debate, who can be in the public square of Corinth and really give it to the opponents. They wanted impressive, high-status people, people who shifted the gravity in the room when they entered. That's who they were looking for. And Paul, not only in his person, because he was unable to be that person, he didn't want to be that person for them because it would play into all of the Corinthians' idols. He's just a lowly missionary. So he appeals to what instead? He appeals to his integrity. He appeals to his character, which is kind of a risky thing to do because if people know you, they can say, well, wait a minute, I was there when you, when you did this or that. And it's also risky because we don't really like people who think about and promote their own behavior, their own morality as a standard for everyone else. We call them Pharisees in the church. But what is his evidence? What does he give the Corinthians that they should listen to them? And why should or to him? And why should we listen to him? One of the reasons I think is that he's giving a counterexample to some of the primary reasons that people give for leaving the church or not entering in to begin with. Sociologists talk about the nuns. Those are the people that check the box of a religious affiliation on the census form. There is no religious affiliation in this household, and that's becoming more and more common in our country and has been common in places like Portland for decades. But there's also the duns, those people who grew up in the church and decided, I've had enough. I don't buy into this anymore. Or I was hurt by someone in the church who said that they believed this thing called Christianity but didn't give evidence of it in their life, and they hurt me deeply. And we see in the media constantly conversation about the hypocrisy 
in the church. And a lot of it's true, frankly. Some of you this morning may have been hurt by someone in the church, and I want to apologize to you for that. We need to do better. We need to live up to our confession. However, I do think that most of us are able to recognize that Christians, like everyone else, are human and fallible, and we're, we're capable of making choices that are inconsistent with what we say that we believe. What should irk us is not when Christians blow it and then apologize. It's those in the church who blow it big time and don't acknowledge it, those who refuse to admit their weakness, those who, because of their doctrinal system, because of their own behavior, look down at other people, even though the gospel that we say we believe is a critique of all of us, and it should humble all of us, especially religious people. Well, Paul should be for us a breath of fresh air, because it's one thing to share our foibles and our inconsistencies with a close friend or a spouse because we know that they can't leave us and we know that they have to stick by us even though we have these things in our life that don't look all that pretty. But Paul does more than that. He talks about his foibles and idiosyncrasies and even his sin in Holy Scripture. He writes it about himself in his letters. And in Romans, he talks about this inconsistency in his own life that he's identifying. And he says that the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things he doesn't want to do, he finds himself doing over and over. He's a fallen person. He's a real person. And he needs the gospel like all of us. And any of us who have looked at our own behavior and have misunderstood ourselves, why do I keep doing these things? Why do I keep doing exactly what I said I wouldn't do? Should find great affinity for Paul and find a, a fellow traveler. Yet, at the same time, what does Paul do? He says to the Corinthians, look at how I've lived and look at how I've treated you. Haven't I been fair to you? Haven't I been honest? He's not claiming at all to be without fault. Far from it. But the gift of grace has taken root in his life. It's left a trail for someone to follow. It's identifiable. It's changed him from the religious Pharisee who was bent on exterminating Christianity to one who is tender and is comforting and is loving even towards people like the Corinthians who have hurt him deeply. Paul kept trying to reacclimate his churches to the call of the gospel, to follow Jesus, not just believe him, to embody his teaching, not just agree with it. The Corinthians wanted status, however. They wanted celebrity. They wanted standing. They wanted identity. And Paul says, here's what you should be looking for in your Christian leaders and here's what you should be looking for in your own individual life and in your community life. Trustworthiness, kindness, patience, authenticity, purity, strength in weakness, truthfulness. And then finally, and there's a number more, but he says a heart overflowing with love that is pulled wide open to people nearby. The unfortunate thing is it's Christians like these who don't make the headlines because they're just normal, everyday people who take Jesus seriously and go about their lives. 
But we see in this a heart overflowing with love, a heart wide open that Christianity is not simply meant to be lived individually, but it's meant to be lived in relationship and meant to be lived in community. Grace isn't simply an individual inheritance that makes us individually rich, but it's meant to be a virus. You see, it's meant to be exercised in relationship and in community. It's meant to infect other people. God wants to get at other people, to get His grace to other people through you. So we've looked at the possibility of grace in vain, which is a sobering wake-up call to all of us who are Christians this morning. And then we looked at grace described in Paul's life. But we also need to see finally and quickly grace enough for others. Paul tells the Corinthians that because of the work of Jesus in his life, that he's endured suffering, that he has felt this call to give up his rights to his own life, his rights to growing rich based upon his intellectual accomplishments. He makes just enough money to continue moving around and planting churches, that it's led to sleepless nights. It's led to hunger. It's kind of like a parent, right? I've given birth to this thing, in this case a church, and I now have sleepless nights. I now am tired. I'm now beat up. I feel beat down. And who is more talented than kids in in withholding affection. If they don't get what they want, often kids will pout in the corner. They'll stomp their feet. They'll say, I will not be comforted by you. And they refuse affection. And that was Paul's complaint in these verses, is that he had given his life to these Corinthians and that they were ungrateful. They were ungrateful to Paul And ultimately, they are ungrateful to God. And this isn't a parent saying, you know, look what I've done for you. (laughs) I put a roof over your head. I change your diapers. I feed you. I give you ice cream. You better get a smile on your face, mister. We know how that works, right? He's saying, in fact, we're both children. We're both needy. We're children of an incredible father who opened his heart wide to us. Don't you see the Corinthians, they're looking for status. They're looking for standing. They're looking for reputation. They're looking ultimately for power. And Paul says, God has given you his son. Is there anything more powerful than that? Is there anything more delightful and huge that the God at the center of the universe When he comes knocking, he comes not extracting, but he comes giving. He comes with a heart that's pulled wide open for his creation. This meritocracy that we all live in instills within us this scarcity mentality. There's not enough goodness in the world. There's not enough wealth in the world. There's not enough to go around. And so we worry about being impoverished, and so we hide and we guard We keep the good things that we have from others. We close our heart off to other people. 
But at the center of the gospel, you see, at the center of God's character is this unending fountain of grace. And for Paul, that's led him to be able to live under stress, to live out under the stars, to live in poverty so that other people can receive the grace that he did. For Paul, that's what opening his heart means. But you see, he's ultimately pointing beyond himself, and he's saying that there is a God who opened his heart wide to him. And that's really the thing that he's pointing to, not to his own morality, but saying he is living in response to the God of the universe who opens his heart wide to his creation. And therefore, he's able to talk about the paradox of having nothing yet possessing everything because Jesus himself embodied this paradox, becoming nothing so that Paul, so that you, so that I can have everything. You see, his opening his heart wide to you meant for Jesus the same thing and even more than it did for Paul. It meant poverty. It meant scorn. It meant rejection. It meant homelessness, and it meant ultimately a cross. And that's our invitation, is to look at Jesus, the one who opened his heart wide to your needs so that we can open our hearts wide to the needs of others. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that we would take seriously the call to live unto you, that we would never reflect upon and measure our own goodness as indicative of how much you love us. Far from it, that we would hold on to the gospel, that we would hold on to grace even when we blow it, even when we blow it consistently. But Father, let us cling to you. Let us cling to the gospel. Let us cling to the forgiveness that you have given us in the person of Jesus, and therefore let us forgive others. Let us open our, wide, our, our heart wide to the needs around us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.